You're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. Pediophilia. As healthcare providers, do we really understand who is at risk? And what about the victims? Who does the pedophile seek to victimize? And why are the molesters able to commit repeat offenses, and yet they're not being reported? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ryan C. Hall. Dr. Hall is a senior resident from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at John Hopkins University and the current Rappaport Fellow from the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. His father is Dr. Richard Hall, who is a courtesy clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Florida. Together they've just published a paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings entitled A Profile of Pedophilia. Today we're discussing the victim profile of pedophilia to help us identify children who could be at risk in our practice. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today, Dr. Hall. It's good to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Now, can you tell us a little about who is being victimized and what children are the most vulnerable? I mean, that's a very interesting question to ask. When you kind of look at the data on what's been reported, you kind of see two time peaks, people at age 5 and age 14. Now, you have to understand that that's when it's been reported, so it's unclear about when the abuse may have started. So the 14 may be a little on the later end of it. Uh, but roughly, of all the reported sexual crimes out there, 34% of them occur to kids under age 12, and about 33% occur to kids age 12 to 17. So it appears to occur to kids around any age or any time. Are there any differences between the male and female victims? The, uh, the female victims are generally more likely to uh, experience sexual assault as they get a little bit older. Uh, and some of the assault may not necessarily be by pedophiles, but from other peers in their own age group. As a brief review, I mean, when pedophiles, you have to be at least five years older than your victim to meet criteria for the diagnosis. When you look at females, they uh, usually are molested in their homes or in the home of the perpetrator against them. And usually the victims of pedophiles are usually the younger children uh, below the age of 10. For males, they're usually more likely to be molested by pedophiles uh, at an older age, uh, about 10 to 14, and it can occur along roadsides, fields, woods, uh, motels, hotels. It's less likely to occur in the uh, pedophile's home or uh, their own home. When you look at all males who are abused, for children, 18% of them are, or 18% of all individuals who are children that are abused are male. And when you look at adults who are involved in a sexual crime, only 4% of uh, males are abused. So male children are much more likely to be abused when they're younger. What factors may make a child more vulnerable than others? Well, for the first thing is a lot of the kids know their assailant. Uh, about 60 to 70 times percent when a, a child is assaulted, they know who committed the crime. Even for uh, forcible assaults, they know the assailant 30 percent of the time. So, you know, kind of knowing who's around them can put them at risk. And then children who are usually selected by pedophiles or targeted by pedophiles are usually a lonely, isolated, have few social supports. And the pedophile uses this to gain friendship with them or can use, you know, positions of authority or being a fatherly figure to gain the trust of the child. Very rarely do pedophiles forcibly grab kids off the street. So this gaining trust and finding somebody who is susceptible or willing to have a relationship uh, is very important to the pedophile. What can you tell us about the family characteristics of affected children? Are some more at risk than others? Are there certain types of homes that they come from? 
when uh, you look at some of the studies that uh, look at people who were abused, and a lot of this work was actually done out of Canada by uh, Bagley, who you know would cold call 750 male and female individuals. The characteristics seen for the families was uh, a lot of these kids came from single-parent homes or homes where the father had been absent for about a three-year period of time, even if they were still married. Uh, the homes were described as unhappy or uh, chaotic homes. They were usually kind of from poorer families that had limited resources or limited influence in their own community. You know, and the thought was that these families would be less likely to report uh, a molestation or be able to uh, be believed if they made uh, allegations of a molestation. Dr. Hall, what time of day do most assaults occur? And does this mean anything in terms of prevention? Meal times, you know, so breakfast, lunch, dinner. Uh, when the parents may be out of the house or there's a surrogate caretaker or somebody who's volunteered to help out, but also right after school is a particularly uh, common time for these occurrences to occur. Again, there's very little adult supervision around, uh, so 3, 4 o'clock. Once you get over the age of 12, you start seeing more of an adult pattern with assaults occurring at about 8 p.m. to 2 in the morning, but you still continue to see the after-school pattern and some of the mealtime pattern. Uh, so kind of what this means for prevention is kind of the old slogan, I guess. You know, it's 3 p.m. Do you know where your kids are? And more importantly, do you know who they're with? You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ryan Hall. We are discussing the victim profile of pedophilia. Dr. Hall, what role does pornography play? Well, a lot of times, as I said earlier, pedophiles try to befriend children or try to get them to actively engage. Uh, you know, they don't want to use force if they don't need to. So many times we use pornography as a way to desensitize children, uh, to make them feel comfortable to be naked or to engage in certain acts. And they'll even show them pornography of other children doing these things to further enhance the notion that this is normal or this is appropriate. When you've looked at studies, about 30 to 80 percent of people uh, who have viewed child pornography will eventually be arrested for child molestation. And some of the studies looking at the Internet suggest maybe even a higher percentage of 70 to 80 percent of people who are arrested for Internet crimes uh, have also molested a child. But what always surprises me is uh, some of the recent federal uh, data from year 2000 showed that most of the pornography and child pornography crimes are involving traditional uh, magazines, videotapes, books, not necessarily computer-generated images. Now, I don't know if this is because the old network is easier to pick up law enforcement-wise and it's harder to police for the computerized crimes, or if the videos and the tangible methods are still preferred by pedophiles. But I understand there's other ways that the Internet is involved. Can you tell us something about that? People have been trying to look at uh, individuals who commit computer sex crimes or uh, child pornography crimes, and they've come up with several different categories. Uh, one is the notion of the stalker, and this is someone who will go into chat rooms or try and find people on MySpace to set up meetings to gain physical and direct access uh, to children. Then you have what they kind of call the cruiser, which is someone who will be in the chat rooms who can get gratification from just chatting with somebody who they think is a minor about sexually explicit materials, but doesn't necessarily want to have direct physical relationship. You have the category which is referred to as the masturbators, and I kind of was hoping they'd come up with a little more creative title than that. But these are the people who are just kind of looking for images uh, and for just pure uh, self-gratification. 
Uh, and then what I kind of think is the most dangerous group is the networkers and the swappers. And these are pediophiles who are in communication with other pediophiles to trade pornography, to trade information, uh, and to also swap children, uh, which, you know, when I started reading about this, I was surprised and shocked to see happens and more frequently than we'd like to acknowledge. Uh, and you can always have somebody who has a combo of these things. Now, there's been some thought that these activities may be on the decrease due to more uh, policing of the Internet, more watchdog groups, and, you know, shows like To Catch a Predator. But it's going to be interesting to see where this goes in the next 10 to 20 years. And the big fear everyone has is that the Internet may make people disinhibited and that they'll gauge in activities that they normally wouldn't do. And, you know, at this time, I don't think we've got enough research to tell if these pedophiles would have molested children eventually, whether they had access to them on the Internet or not. And that's going to be one of the big questions and maybe one of the big ways to try and prevent uh, this act from occurring in the future. What factors do lead up to the arrest when ones finally occur? We've heard about stings in Florida. What are some of the factors that lead to the successful arrest of these people? Well, about 29% of sexual charges that are filed lead to arrest, and that's whether you're looking at adults or kids. But as groups, children have the highest rate of uh, actually having arrests occur when they're uh, molested. And a lot of the factors is if there's a single offender, just one individual who committed the acts, if the acts happened in a group situation, meaning more than one child at the same time. Uh, and usually when there's group situations, the kids are around the same age. Whether it's a female victim, and I'm not sure if that's just because, you know, parents are more likely to report uh, abuse that occurs to a child or that, you know, female victims gain more sympathy and therefore it's easier to get a conviction or enough for an arrest. And also, you know, if the offense occurred in a residence, it's much more likely to lead to arrest. And I'm assuming that's due to the fact that there's more available evidence for a forensics evaluation. And also what I thought kind of paradoxically is uh, if the child's not injured physically by the molestation, it's much more likely to lead to an arrest. Uh, and I think part of that might be parents' willingness to prosecute or, you know, have a case go to trial. If the child's been injured, people may want to spare them from further reliving it. I think those are some of the things that we know from the data, and then the question and speculation is why they're that way. Yeah, can you say some more about why more incidents aren't reported? Well, a lot of times the uh, the children themselves don't come forward, and, you know, the general reasons are similar to why adult victims of uh, sexual assault may not come forward. Uh, they're worried that they won't be believed. They're worried that if they talk that they'll be physically harmed or there'll be other repercussions, and sometimes they actually identify with the attacker. Uh, again, pedophiles usually try and build up the trust and the friendship of the child, and the child may not want to violate that. Some of the studies that have actually asked kids, you know, why they waited before they reported abuse broke down into whether or not they were abused only once or abused multiple times. When it was only once, they uh, found statements like, I can handle the abuse, I didn't think it was going to happen again, uh, it didn't really bother me. So kind of a denial or rationalization uh, defense mechanisms by the victim or just generally worried about how they would be treated. In cases of multiple abuse, the, uh, the kids usually feel partly responsible. A lot of times they like it when they start getting this attention from a father figure, especially if their own has been absent, or they feel that they've got a special privilege when, you know, somebody with authority is paying attention to them. And they sometimes don't want to see the persecutor put in jail. And again, they're still identifying with them, and it's almost like a Stockholm-type syndrome. You know, many primary care providers listening to this broadcast provide for families and may have children in their practice. What can they look for in this population? And then what's the next step if they have any signs or symptoms that are disturbing? Well, I think some of the important things to look for is, you know, 
have there been acute changes? You know, and this could also be a sign for general psychiatric problems as well, but is the kid fearful of going to school? Do they not want to leave uh, the mother or the father at this point in time? Are they getting into trouble? Are they angry? Are they hurting themselves? Or are they hurting pets or animals? Uh, have they started wetting the bed again? Things along these signs, uh, you know, indicating regression could indicate, you know, stress related to the trauma or could also be a sign of depression and need to have further evaluations for it. Uh, there's some great, you know, review articles out there. Uh, one was done by Kellogg that was looking at, uh, from the American Academy of uh, Pediatrics, which was on uh, child abuse and neglect, uh, the evaluation of sexual abuse in children, uh, which came out in 2005 in the journal Pediatrics. There's also a lot of uh, state websites that can help with uh, when do you report these issues. One of them is Mandatory Reporting of Child Abuse and Neglect, a summary of each individual state's laws, which is available at www.childwelfare.gov. You know, Dr. Hall, a lot of information you gave us today is very disturbing, but we need to hear it. Um, and I want to thank you very much uh, for being here today. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Dr. Hall, who's been our guest today, and we've been discussing the victim profile in pedophilia. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.